so much for having me, Bridge Church. Um, yes, I have the privilege, or the opposite of privilege, depending on how you look at it, of being uh, Eric's final roommate before he has his permanent roommate now. So yeah, there were great times back then. Uh, Les, thank you so much for reading. Um, Mephibosheth is not an easy word to pronounce, so good on you. Well done. Um, so it looks like to me, just from talking to Eric and looking through the series, you've been going through this, I guess, long series going through the Bible, right? And I think that's been really encouraging just to see that, to see that you guys are digging into God's word, mining it, you know, not just in maybe more familiar places like the Gospels or the letters, but actually going into the Old Testament, mining for the, the riches of God's word. And I, I think you've covered Genesis, right? You started there, you've covered the first five books, the law, the Torah. I think you've covered Joshua, Judges, Ruth last week. And so this week, I believe, we are at Second Samuel. Well, well, the books of Samuel. And Samuel actually covers some of the, the, the stories that I love the most in the Bible because it's this time in the history of God's people where they transition into becoming a, a monarchy, a human monarchy led by a king. And so you have... Uh, you know, just makes me think about all those, I don't know, big movies like Braveheart or fantasy movies like Lord of the Rings, you know, where there's epic battles and intrigue and political intrigue and plotting and romance and all those fun things. And that's kind of like a little bit like what happens in, in Samuel. There's a lot of kings. There's a lot of conquests. There are uh, fights. There's debauchery for sure. And these are the books in 2 Samuel that explore the life of King David, as we've just read. And obviously, there's some great well-known stories that we know. There's obviously um, David and Goliath. I hope most of us know that. And if not, we can talk about that later. There's David and Goliath, little David Shepherd slinging down this giant. There's this dramatic conflict uh, between him and King Saul, who was the first king, and how David replaced Saul. Um, there's all these stories of David's conquests over the Philistines and others. There's also obviously the story of King David and his brokenness and his sin with Bathsheba and how he committed adultery with her. And so those, those are all the great, maybe well-known stories. But today I think there's this story maybe not as well-known, the story of David and Mephibosheth, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. And we're really going to zero in here because one of the things I love about this short little story in these two books of Samuel is how incredibly it captures the, I guess, the essence of the entire Bible in this one little story. And so as we look through the Bible, we're going to take a pit stop right here, a very important pit stop with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is a story, to put it summary, a story about how God's kindness comes. God's kindness comes to even the most unlikely of people, how God, God's kindness comes to even the most unlikely of people. And it's going to be a simple outline. We're, we're going to explore this in a few ways. We're going to look at how Mephibosheth is a tragic character, how he became, um, how he suffered and how he became an enemy of the king. Then we're going to look at how God's kindness actually broke through that and came into Mephibosheth's life. And thirdly, we're going to look at how that actually changed his life and how that impacted him. So it should be easy to follow along um, with me. So I didn't, no slides. We're just going to go through those three uh, points. 
So let's start firstly with this character of Mephibosheth that we just read. It's easy to kind of, when you kind of read through a, a story like that, it's easy to kind of miss the nuances and the details and obviously the context. So in order to really understand the tragedy that we just read, beyond the obvious things of him becoming crippled and, and lame, the, the, we need to first understand the, the context of, of that. So just to recap, in terms of Mephibosheth's uh, family, just a really brief history lesson. Mephibosheth's grandfather was King Saul, the first king of Israel. And unfortunately, King Saul, in his journey, he disobeyed God and he rejected him. And so God rejected King, king Saul as king. God rejected Saul, his granddad. And Saul's eldest son was Jonathan. And Jonathan became the father of Mephibosheth. So you have his lineage there. And then another thing, just brief historical context to know is that this is kind of at the beginning of Israel's development as a, as a kingdom and its development into statehood. And so there was a lot of conflict and military conflict right now with their neighbors. So the Philistines were especially notorious sort of arch enemy of the Israelites. And so this is the world that Mephibosheth was born into. Yes, he was born into great privilege. You know, he was a prince born into royalty, born into wealth, but he was also born into a world of turmoil. His granddad had messed up really bad, and he, had, he was now basically turned away from God. His nation was still constantly at war. And this is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, that first little introduction we read. I'll read it for you once again so we can kind of wrap our heads around it. So it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him and fled. And as she fled in haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So here you have this five-year-old child. The news that they've just received is that grandfather and dad have been killed in battle with the Philistines. The battle at Jezreel was a failure and they've lost. And understandably at this point, the nurse takes him and haste, they, they run away because who knows at this point what's gonna happen, you know, when the king has died, when the eldest son has died, who, what's gonna happen to the rest of the royal family? But unfortunately, tragedy strikes again and he falls and breaks both his feet. And, in, at, and you can imagine at those times with the medical level and, and whatnot, it would easily from breaking feet to permanent disability. And so in one fell swoop at the age of five, Mephibosheth goes from a place of wealth, son of royalty, full of potential and promise, as you can imagine, to a place of being an orphan, to being a fugitive now, because the Philistines are kind of crouching at the doorstep and ultimately disability as well. At five years old, this tragedy and suffering is thrust upon Mephibosheth. Now, physical disability, I think you can imagine. I don't know if you've gone through it or you have friends or family. It's hard enough to navigate today in 21st century Hong Kong. I've gotten just a taste of it in the sense of now I have a, I have a young child. So figuring out stroller routes and looking for those wheelchair signs in Hong Kong is, it, it requires a fair bit of planning, doesn't it? And that's Hong Kong. We got ramps. We even have wheelchairs. Go back two and a half thousand years to ancient Middle East, the ancient Near East, the implications of being physically disabled in both your feet were 
you can just imagine how severe that was. And it's not just the physical side, which you can imagine, but there was this moral dimension that for those who were disabled in, in, the, in the ancient times, there was this sense that maybe you were cursed. You were cursed because you were physically disabled. So you lived with that stigma. In the Bible, you read that blindness and lameness were often just lumped together as people who were outcast, marginalized, rejected by society and excluded. One biblical scholar even thinks that because of Mephibosheth's dis disability, you know, when his uncles died, when Jonathan and all his brothers died, Mephibosheth was basically overlooked and ignored as even a possible successor because of his physical disability, because of his lameness. And so he went from literally everything to literally nothing. And so we see Mephibosheth as a real example of, of suffering, but he also shows us in this story as an example of what it looks like to be an enemy of the king, of your own people. And this is what I mean. After King Saul rejected God, after his grandfather rejected God, God chose another man, right? King David, anointed to be the next king, the rightful king. And obviously that meant that Saul's offspring would no longer be in succession. And so it was customary in those times, in, in that culture, for whenever a regime change happened, then the new house ascended and they would basically kill off everyone in the previous house. And that kind of makes sense, right? It's barbaric, but it actually removes any danger of insurrection, of rival claims to the throne. And so and this wasn't even just hypothetical, actually. When you read 2 Samuel, there was a conflict. The followers of Saul wanted to reinstate Saul's line. And so this wasn't just a, a potential problem. David knew that this was a real issue. And not only that with this sort of succession conflict, but David and, and Saul were actually enemies, personal, because Saul tried to kill David when, when way back in the day. And so all of these reasons, man, David had every reason to eliminate Mephibosheth. He had every reason to remove him from the equation altogether. And so Mephibosheth is now, to summarize, he is a physically disabled orphan. He's been on the run from the Philistines as a fugitive, and now he's an enemy of the state. In that culture, he should have died. He deserved death to be, death to be removed from all sort of potential um, disagreement and dispute over the crown and for the throne. This is some life it turned out to be, isn't it? If you can just imagine this prince, where he was and where he is now. And it's this backstory, it's this backdrop that you now understand that makes chapter nine that we read, we read afterwards, it makes that so jaw-dropping. And this is what we mean. Because this is where King David comes into the life of this broken, tragic character. And so this is the next point that we're going to pivot to. We're going to look at God's kindness and how it actually comes to Mephibosheth in chapter 9. So you can follow with me in chapter 9, verse 1, if you'd like. This is what David said. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is the key verse for us. This is the turnaround. This is where it all pivots. This is where Mephibosheth's life begins to turn a 180. First, we see here in King David this one pronouncement. We see the heart of David's character in one sentence. For those of you who have read, you know, David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, right? 
a man after God's own heart. He's perhaps the greatest king Israel has ever known in the Old Testament. You see, Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, when he was still alive, against all odds, even though his Saul was trying to kill David, David and, and Jonathan became best friends. They became best friends. And actually, they made this covenant. They made this sacred promise. Thank you so much. They made this sacred promise that God's love would always be between them. And not just between them, but between their offspring. So in this case, it would be understandable, right, underneath this covenant that David would look, at, look for Jonathan's offspring and say, how can I show them kindness? But notice what David says. He says, anyone in the house of Saul, he wants to show kindness and mercy to. David's mercy goes beyond what was required under the covenant he made. Not only did he refrain from trying to eliminate anybody in Saul's line, he wanted to show kindness to anyone in it. Secondly, we see this, the true nature of biblical kindness. And this is really important because, you know, this word kindness, you know it's important because it's repeated three, uh, two more times in this chapter. It's, it's three times it says, I want to show kindness. I want to show kindness. So when you see that in scripture, you know the author is trying to hammer home something. Now, when you hear the word kindness, when you, when you hear that someone is kind, what do you think? What kind of comes up in your mind? If I'm honest, what, when I hear it, I feel like it's just a little like, oh, he's generous, or they're, they're kind of gentle, they're just nice people, maybe even a little soft. Uh, it doesn't really conjure something moving to me. Maybe that's just me, but this is one of those times, I think, in Scripture where we really want to dig a little deeper into the Hebrew. I think you can, you can understand a lot. You don't need to be a, a Hebrew or Greek scholar to understand the Bible. But once in a while, you do come across a word that it's really hard to translate because nothing in English really fully captures this word that we use in kindness. And so the word that we translate as kindness here in Hebrew is called chesed. Some of you may have heard of that. It's very well known, chesed. And it just doesn't have an English counterpart because it combines all these ideas, obviously of kindness, but also just general goodness, of faithfulness, of loyalty, of steadfastness. Those are just a few of the things that is captured by this one word. And so when you look at verse three, David repeats his question, but is even more explicit. He said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? It's, it's often connected to God's kindness because who is more faithful, loyal, steadfast than God? Often in the old, test, in the old uh, translations, they use the word loving kindness to try and capture this full sense. But even that doesn't really show you the gravity, the fullness, the richness of chesed. And do you, so you, do you kind of see why David would use this word, kindness, chesed, when he's talking about Jonathan uh, and Mephibosheth? David is remembering, he's loyally remembering his covenant with Jonathan. And it's out of this goodness, out of this steadfast love that he acts on that promise. He's carrying out, he's being steadfast and dependable and faithful. This is the nature of true biblical kindness. It's not just a, a throwaway word that, oh, he's so kind. Eric, you're such a kind father. You are, but we're talking about this chesed. So in the depths of Mephibosheth's suffering, as he lives as the enemy of the king, David is the one through God's spirit, being a man of God's own heart. He's the one who remembers 
Mephibosheth. He's the one who finds him. He's the one who brings him before the throne. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Mephibosheth to be brought lame before the true king of Israel, the enemy of his grandfather, the one that had every right to eliminate him on the spot? And so in verse 9, he says, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? In ancient Israel, to call someone a dog would have been incredibly derogatory. So not only that, Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog. And I can imagine, perhaps we can imagine how Mephibosheth's suffering, how his ostracization has just totally rewired him. It's changed his identity. He was once royalty and now he is a dead dog. And it's from this posture, literally prostrate, that Mephibosheth hears David say, do not fear. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Mephibosheth was broken and estranged, but he was never forgotten because God's kindness, his chesed, had come from Mephibosheth. So now that we understand the true nature of kindness, true nature of biblical God-centered kindness, let's take a look at how that actually changed this young man's life. See, David could have easily said, and very rightfully said, hey, Mephibosheth, okay, let me show you kindness. You're no longer an enemy of the state. No one can touch, no one can touch Mephibosheth. Your life is no longer in danger. Go in peace. He could have easily said that, and we would have said, okay, that's great, you know? How merciful, how kind of David to spare this son of his enemy. But is that really what Mephibosheth needed? Preserving Mephibosheth's life, I guess, would have been a good thing. But was that really what was wrong in Mephibosheth's heart? You know, by calling himself a dead dog, I wonder, I really wonder if he really cared that much about his physical well-being in his life anymore, actually. I think dying would have been, not dying would have been good, but I don't think that was the real issue because we know now that Mephibosheth, we've appreciated that he has lost everything that gave him meaning and purpose. He had lost his home. He was now living under the care of an outsider, under Ziba, who was a, the king's, like a steward, but an outsider. He'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his means of living. He had lost his family. He had lost his status. He had lost his mobility. And ultimately, he had lost his dignity. He had lost his honor, his humanity, his purpose. The thing about God's kindness is that it's never superficial. It never just says, okay, let's just paste over this issue. But it goes to the core of this man's need, the root of the issue. And so in verse 7, David proclaims this incredible statement. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And in these two statements, these two proclamations, everything about Mephibosheth's life is categorically reversed and changed. Becoming an owner of the family land, that's obviously a great thing. But the most important thing is that Mephibosheth will now eat at the king's table. Again, we know this phrase, eating at the king's table, is packed with importance because it's repeated three more times in this chapter. You may already know that in biblical times, eating at someone's table is, is a lot 
It's a lot more than you know, having a lunchbox or a takeaway or Deliveroo and eating it next to someone. It was much more than consuming food. Dining at someone's table was a symbol of identification, of fellowship, of welcoming. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus' critics were often so, they, they really got onto that because he would eat with sinners. He would eat with people who were apparently unclean. He was identifying with them. So this idea of dining at the king's table was massive. It was life-changing. In verse 10, David is even more explicit. He says, yes, the servants will work Mephibosheth's land. Mephibosheth, you will have food. You'll never have to worry about providing for yourself. But this is not about providing physical food. This is about dining at my table. You will always dine at my table because this is about family. This is about relationship. And this is even more explicit in verse 11. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. His identity, his stature has been completely changed. And there's one final piece to Mephibosheth's just miraculous transformation. Verse 12 mentions that he has a young son named Micah. And so from this broken, disabled man, a dead dog comes a new life, comes a son. And we know when you read through the rest of Samuel, you have uh, Micah actually has more offspring. And so an entire lineage, a new generation comes from this dead dog. Isn't that amazing? Isn't this transformation just utterly amazing? And the story ends with this, an interesting conclusion. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in, in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet the end. It's kind of a strange conclusion, isn't it? It can seem like an odd way to finish. But what's, what's clear to me from this is that his lameness, his physical disability was not sort of miraculously healed. Physi physically, Mephibosheth is always, is as, as he always has been. But perhaps the point of this and sort of the real miracle is that this broken and disabled man had himself restored despite being lame that his true needs were met. It's not a superficial solution, but something that goes to the core of his need. His honor is bestowed by the king who welcomes him as a son. And this is God's life-changing kindness. So what does all of this have to do with us today, 21st century Hong Kong? So let's close with, with just showing you and applying that to us. Because I think as Christians or non-Christians or someone who's seeking here today, what does this have to do with us? I think when we hear the story of Mephibosheth, this tale of his tragedy and suffering, I think a lot of those themes resonate with us, or they can resonate. This idea of being born into a world of turmoil, of conflict. You, know, you just need to read the news. You, know, you just need to open your eyes to find out. You just have to remember that we're living in a pandemic. This has been the year of the pandemic, and there has been so much loss and frustration. Some of us may wrestle with the fact that our hopes and dreams were ruined because of things out of our control. Maybe it's something because of the pandemic, maybe it's something else, but it was out of our control. Maybe there's so much purpose and potential that you saw, but it's just been ruined. Maybe it's been squandered somehow. Maybe you had a dream job or a career that just slipped through your fingers and it just didn't work out the way you wanted. Maybe some of us are wrestling with the lost hope of, of building a family. Maybe it's the, the hardship of, of dating and trying to find that significant other and brokenheartedness. Maybe it's infertility. 
Maybe it's the loss of family members, the struggle of family dysfunction, who can't identify with just family conflict and brokenness in the home. And all of us experienced sort of dysfunction in our family. And maybe it's not to the extent of Mephibosheth and Saul, but we all have to deal with the poor choices of our forefathers, right? Most importantly, we all suffer from being enemies of the true king, just like Mephibosheth. Maybe it's not a human king or a human government like, like in ancient Israel, but we are enemies of the king of the universe, right? The God who lovingly created us so that we could lovingly worship him. But every day we struggle with being enemies of the king. We want to set up our own kingship. We want to be masters of our own destiny and our own fate. We want to do it on our own. And we want to turn away from God. We want to ignore the one that we were created to serve. And we end up hurting ourselves. We end up hurting each other. We end up trampling on others to get what we want instead of finding everything we need in the one who created us. And so the story of humanity, when you pull back the curtain, is, can be seen as equally a tragedy, just like the story of Mephibosheth. Like dead dogs, we are spiritually dead and separated from the God who created us. And again, it's against this backdrop that God intervenes, that his hesed comes in. Whatever you've been suffering through in this season, maybe even this week, this story of Mephibosheth is God's message to you today, that he remembers you, that he remembers you in your pain, in your suffering, in your sin, and he doesn't want you to be his enemy. He wants you to know his kindness, his hesed. You know, in the story that we read, David was the conduit of God's kindness, right? But a thousand years after him, we know that another man came, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was born into the world from David's line, the house of David. In every way, he was as kind as David, but he was more because David was still sinful. David was still broken, but Jesus was the God-man, perfect, sinless, God in flesh. David's hesed to Mephibosheth was amazing, but Jesus's hesed to us is incomparable. Jesus is the true and better David. You know, David made this covenant with Jonathan, but Jesus made a covenant with humanity. He said, and we're going to observe communion later, but Jesus said on the night before he was betrayed, this is my blood. It's a covenant poured out for you guys for the forgiveness of sins. It's not just for one person. It's poured out for many. Jesus's covenant with us was greater than David's covenant. David's covenant, it cost him maybe some of his wealth. Jesus's covenant with us cost him his life, right? We deserve death, separation from God, but Jesus went through that in our place. And through this covenant, through this covenant, God welcomes us, his suffering enemies, into his royal household. In the Bible, one of the most prominent images of eternal life, of eternal blessing, is this great banquet, this wedding feast. And it's just like, just like David is saying, come Mephibosheth, come dine at my table always. God is saying, come and dine with me into everlasting life. When David welcomed Mephibosheth always to eat at his table, Mephibosheth still grew, grew like old and someone would have died. But when Jesus welcomes us into his eternal banquet table, he's welcoming us into everlasting life, into life in abundance. So our choice now this morning for every one of us in our seats and standing here is how do we want to respond 
to this invitation. Because I guess Mephibosheth could have said, nah, I think I can push through the suffering. Maybe, De- maybe Mephibosheth could have said, well, maybe I'm not really in that dire of straits. Maybe he could have been in denial and said, I'm not really an enemy of the king. But I think he knew exactly what his predicament was. Yes, his suffering was real and tragic. Yes, his disability was terrible, but his greatest need was wholeness and restoration from his heart. He needed dignity again. He needed to be unconditionally loved and accepted. He needed to be restored to be a friend of the king. And so recognizing this, he fully and joyfully accepted the king's kindness and devoted himself to him. Friends, church, we are the same. Whatever pain and suffering you're going through or you have gone through, we don't minimize that. That is real and that is hard. But God wants you and I to recognize this morning that our greatest need is actually to be restored in our hearts and our spirit to him. So will you accept that kindness? Will you continue to accept him? You know, when you've been forgiven and welcomed and adopted by the king of kings, by the king of the universe, when you know you have that eternal home, dining at the banquet table forever, when you know that God's going to prepare an eternal home for you, you begin to see this world a little differently. That's a bit what, like what happened to Mephibosheth, actually, because when you read on in the story, something happens later. Mephibosheth, later in, in Samuel, he's actually accused. He's accused of plotting against David and trying to overthrow the throne. And, in, and he's basically in danger all over again of losing everything. But instead of complaining or blaming or freaking out or running away, he comes before the king and says, I am just grateful. Basically, he says, David, I'm grateful to be in your presence, to be a friend of the king. The relationship with the king has now become the most important thing to Mephibosheth. And the king's kindness now overflows from his heart. You see, a person who understands suffering who recognizes that they are an enemy of the king, they will gladly receive the kindness of God. So my question for us this morning is, how are you suffering? And how are you wrestling with your suffering? What's the sin and the brokenness that you're struggling with? You know, those of you who are sick and wrestling with sickness, this is a message from God to you saying that, I remember you. God says, I remember you. Come home, come and sit at my table, always. I wanna be your loving father. I want to give you abundant, eternal life. For those of you who are wrestling with addiction or lust, God is saying, come home, come to the table. Those of us who are torn because of family, drama, brokenness, dysfunction, Jesus says, come home, come to my table. Those of you who are drowning in expectation and the weight of the world is on your shoulders, maybe your boss, your workplace, whatever it is, the pressure is on, God is saying, come to my table come to find eternal rest. For all of us who struggle with purpose, all of us who are sinners struggling with eternal, with, with, with having eternal hope, God is saying, come home, come to my table and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God, this is your invitation to us to come home, to come to the table. Some of us have been wrestling and struggling and are suffering right now. I pray that your spirit would just draw them to you and show them that you are everything they need, that you have made a place for them. You have prepared a home for them where there will be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. And today in this lifetime, you're with them. For those of us who have struggled through lots of things, but have tasted the goodness and have come to the table, I pray that they would persevere, that they would delight in your presence. And just like Mephibosheth, they would not 
they would not settle with just being in your presence, God, but they would bear fruit, that they would bear spiritual offspring, that they would not just hoard the blessing to themselves, but that they would continue to share the good news, share your gospel to others. God, thank you for your table. Thank you for the table of communion that we're going to come to right now that reminds us of your welcoming, of your kindness, of your unconditional love. And I pray that whatever we need to deal with, Lord, we would just come before you with an open heart and say, Lord, take me as I am. Take me in my sin, my shame, my suffering, my hurt. Thank you, King of Kings, for welcome. In Jesus' name, amen.